I would invite you to turn in your Bibles this evening. I'm going to read from two separate passages. I'll begin with Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, and then I'll continue after that to Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, If you want to follow me to Isaiah 9, I'll begin reading in verse 1. Isaiah 9, verse 1, I'll read to verse 7, and then after that I'll scoot over to Hebrews. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. And when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. For unto us, A child is born unto us, a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts We'll perform this. And then Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. As far the reading of God's word, let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, we come to you. And our hope is that we might understand the significance of the days in which we are living. That we would understand our lives, the calling that you have given to us in light of Christ's incarnation, of his passion and resurrection and ascension, of the coronation that took place many centuries ago of the fall of Jerusalem and the rule and reign of Christ even now over all of those who call upon his name for salvation. And so even now we remember the beginning of the ministry of our king in flesh and blood. Help us to understand then the significance of the work of the Redeemer as it began as it continues even unto the end of the age of men. Help us to understand these things, Lord, that we might not only have understanding, 
that our lives might be transformed and so that we might be encouraged, inspired, motivated to proclaim that Christ, the King, has come. We pray these things then in your name. Amen. All right, there's always a bit of a dilemma in the heart of a confessional Reformed Presbyterian, and that is, will I preach Advent sermons? Maybe you don't think about that or that ministers think about those kinds of things. Historically speaking, uh, there have been a number of different camps in terms of whether or should we do it or should we not. Um, I would fall into the camp that we are free, so long as we are not exercising any kind of tyranny in the pulpit, choosing particular topics, right? But that we can, from time to time, move away from systematic biblical exegesis and do some of these uh, special sermons, especially as it relates to uh, the season that we find ourselves in. Uh, a number of years ago, when I was laboring in southwest China, uh, we had to be very careful about what we talked about every other day of the year, except those days surrounding Christmas. We could just go full hog, Christmas, 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 Jesus came in the flesh, gospel, gospel, gospel. I guess it speaks somewhat of the arbitrary nature of uh, the one-party rule in China, but hey, if they'll give it to us, we'll take it. And so it's always good to focus on Christ's uh, sacrifice, his coming in the flesh, his ministry uh, in those days that he walked upon the earth. And so tonight, I want to talk about the glorious pursuit of Christ in the plan of redemption that gives us that theme of joy in our hearts. A Christmas is the thing that conquers us first, and then Christmas is the thing that conquers the world. Three points that I want to make tonight as it relates to the relationship of God towards man in salvation in light of our plight under sin. Three points. The one who hears. The one who hears. The one who spoke in the flesh. The one who spoke in the flesh. And then thirdly, those who listen. So, the one who hears, the one who spoke in the flesh, and those who listen. Let's look at the first point, the one who hears. Now, as it relates to the plan of salvation, what we find in terms of the unfolding plan of redemption, all of human history, is that everything began in the creation of all things. God, by the word of his power, in the space of six days, made all things, and they very good. And then on the seventh day, he did what, children? He rested. And he calls men to do the same, to labor and to rest. Now, as soon as man, Adam, met his wife and they got married, shortly after that, we find this corrupt being entering into the garden, tempting the woman, the man, failing to protect not only his wife, but creation, by persisting in righteousness and obedience to God, sinned. And upon their sin, prior to their being banished from the garden, God came to them in their shame, in their guilt, and he promised not only judgment, but also a mediator. That promise of mediation comes in the very presence of our own rebellion, of our own idolatry, 
And what we find ourselves coming to terms with, not only in our own lives, but as relating to all common humanity, is that we are a broken and stiff-necked people. Even of the church, our own founder, J. Gresham Machen, said that we are a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ, this OPC denomination, but we are also a company of weak and sinful folk. That despite the fact that we are the called out ones, there remains, even in the life of a Christian, that old man, that nature, that has not yet been fully, completely mortified, put to death. But praise God, one day either in our death or in the coming of Christ, that sin will be gone forever. Now, the Lord, as we see in the garden, was not deaf to our desperate, sinful, uninformed cries for help. He heard us. And in fact, we actually heard him. And when we heard him, we hid. He heard our plight, that is, he was, much, he was very much aware of it, uh, nor is the Lord impatient with us. And so he hears our cries and he is not annoyed with those things, nor is he impatient with those who time and time again, due to the sort of catastrophic effect they have in their own lives of their rebellion, take the book of Judges, for instance, God hears and responds, he is patient he takes pity. This is who he is. That cycle recurring in the book of Judges. We'll go to the book of Judges next year. I cannot wait. The people sinned. They corrupted themselves with the gods of the other nations and then the gods of those other nations as it were or the nations themselves ruled in tyranny over Israel. Israel having a bit of buyer's remorse then repented, well, they pleaded to God for help, repenting of their sins, saying, save us. And time and time again, God saved them. This is the pattern. The scripture, it is the pattern of human history. And what rises to the theme, one of the themes that is that, mu that cannot be missed in the advent is the sympathetic heart of God to those lost in darkness. Those who walked in darkness, as Isaiah writes. Those who dwelt in gloom, who were distressed. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death. God knows this of us. It's the only kinds of lands that we can live in. For there is no light in the heart of man. We see this, that man is wholly debased and corrupt, and we do not seek after God. No one does. No one seeks after the Lord. And so though God is not approached, either in the garden or in all of human history, God approaches us. The way I heard, and I've said this before from the pulpit, so excuse me, but if I say it time and time again, I hope you'll remember it. Uh, hearing Derek Thomas preaching at one point speaks of God sending the hounds of heaven after us, which is a, an interesting way of saying that uh, he pursues us. Uh, perhaps a more Christologically accurate way of putting that is 
Christ himself pursues a sinful man outside the garden so that whenever we see God interacting with the Old Testament people of God, it is always the second person of the Godhead. He's with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. He is the one who convenes with Joshua that night, the commander of the army of the Lord. Some have even argued maybe, maybe he's Mephibosheth. There's some debate about that. What is clear is that he is the one who, according to Jude, walks with Egypt in the wilderness, who guides them and leads them out of the land of bondage and slavery. He is sympathetic, but he is not merely sympathetic. He is powerful and he is ready. He is persistent. He is committed to the objective to redeem us. Don't forget this, kids. On Christmas morning, right? When it's all about the thing you've asked for and whether you got it or not. Which is itself an expression of our own, uh, perhaps, sinful idolatry and love of self. He knows what we need. He knows what we need. In fact, if it were up to us, what are the kinds of things that we would ask for? Who I could really do with another zero on the end of my salary, right? Maybe two zeros. Then I'll be happy. Then I'll be safe. I could do with a, a long life with good health. The kinds of things, right? If you were to be able to rub the bottle and the genie comes out, what would you wish for? And I don't mean more wishes. You had three. In fact, God comes to a man like that one night. He says, ask and I will give you anything. And Solomon, that great wise man, the king of Israel says, give me wisdom. That was a pretty good ask. But the Lord knows what we need. Even before we ask, ever before we would or knew we could, Christ, in Isaiah 53 we read, became acquainted with our griefs. How did I do this? He entered into the pursuit of a sinful people even to the point of taking upon himself created flesh. In the likeness and appearance of men, he became just like us, yet without sin. That means all of those common things to the flesh that are not sinful, he suffered. He suffered under temptation. He suffered in the flesh. The incarnation, which we acknowledge to be true history, through the celebration of Christmas Though I know the dates don't align, Christ came in the flesh. And the reason why Christ came in the flesh is because those who needed redemption bore flesh, type for type. And that leads me then to my second point. God heard us, but he's also the one who revealed salvation to us. Now, I've already kind of trampled all over my second point, perhaps. But he also spoke he spoke in the flesh. He is the one, as Michael Card speaks, sir, writes, the final word is Jesus. He needed no other one. Christ, the eternal logos, the word, took upon himself flesh and blood. Now, Hebrews 1.3 speaks of this. This is the wonderful counselor of whom I read in Isaiah 9. A counselor who hears and a counselor who speaks. And he was revealed first in conception 
and then also in being born. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Now, the way God speaks by his Son is not only did Jesus say things when he was on earth, but Jesus himself is the full and final revelation of God's plan of redemption. That is... There is no other Redeemer or Messiah for whom we wait now. He has come. So any of these cults, right, that claim that Jesus has come again in the form of this particular person in this particular place, what are they after? They're after your money. Don't believe them. Or they're after power or the corruption of their flesh. They're after that which is itself contrary to righteousness. So what happened? Well, John speaks of that, of course, in John 1.1. 1, 1 or the first chapter of John, he has spoken, God, light and life. He did this in creation. He did it at the beginning, but he also does so through revelation over time. And so from the inception, that is the beginning, the inception of our age of rebellion, God was manifesting the means by which he would redeem us. That is what Paul speaks of in Romans 3, the law and the prophets is the whole testimony of the Old Testament. And the whole Old Testament points to the, to the Messiah, the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And so this is the whole Old Testament. The creation of all things, the building of the covenant, the revelation of himself, the plan of the Messiah. In Calvin's commentary to the book of Genesis, he spoke or wrote of the light behind the light. The one who radiates beyond the sun and the moon, the speaking God, who is light and life that purpose to enter into creation that men might be saved. Ever before men learned to sing, the sun was singing, the moon was singing, the planets were singing, the stars of our, our galaxy, the Milky Way, are singing. The heavens declare the glory of God. And though he has spoken in various ways in the past, what is often referred to as the red line of redemption or the scarlet cord of redemption, it runs right through the whole of Scripture. Every book of the Bible, we see it running. You could just maybe grab the end of it on the book of Genesis and just sort of walk your way through the whole of it. God has historically, faithfully, patiently pursued his bride. And then the bridegroom comes. God has spoken, the great counselor of his people, from start to finish. And he reveals himself fully in the Son. Isaiah 40, beginning in verse 1, reads, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. <clears throat> These words we find in the mouth of John the baptizer, the last greatest Old Testament prophet. Isaiah is writing of the one who will come just prior to the Messiah himself. 
as an indication that it's time to really listen. Listen, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And of course, Christ himself proclaims that same message. Christ, according to Paul, not only heard, but spoke. What does Christ speak? In Ephesians 2, verses 15 through 18, he speaks a sermon that brings unification. He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Listen, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That is, though you see a baby, even as an infant, the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus, the person bodily. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, which speaks of the central purpose for which Christ took upon himself flesh and blood. It wasn't just simply to have a human experience like you might do taking a gap year between high school and college and you want to go travel Europe with a backpack. I just want to have that experience. No, Christ did not come into the flesh to vacation, to travel, to see what it was like down here. No, he was here all along, but not in the flesh. You see, the uniqueness of the incarnation has nothing to do with the intimacy of the presence of the Messiah. It has everything to do with the fact that in that time, he took upon himself a reasonable body and soul so that he might suffer and die, so that he might obey the law, so that he might be for us who are sinners the active and passive obedience that brings about our righteousness. This is what Christ did. This is the message, the sermon he preached in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's quite lengthy. But it's worth reading when you get home. Christ appearing to some disciples on the road. They don't recognize him until... He reveals himself from the preaching or through the preaching of the word. What does he do? He uses the law and the prophets. Ultimately, by the Spirit, granting new eyes, new ears, new hearts. And so they say, did our hearts not burn within us? This is what Christ has come to do. Mary knew this. Joseph knew this. They knew the future because they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They knew that their son Jesus named such Yeshua because he is a deliverer. Not like the Old Testament Joshua who delivered Israel out of the wilderness into the land of promise, who killed the kings of that land. And at the end of that book of Joshua, all of the people of God were at rest in that land. Even Eleazar, the high priest, was gone. And so all of those who were, in, in some sense, imprisoned in those cities of refuge were free to go home. 
Now, what does Israel do with that liberty? They did what was right in their own eyes, as we see early on in the book of Judges. But our Redeemer has come. And he has not only led us into a land of promise, but that quality of the land is connected uh, to the quality of his ministry and deliverance. Christ himself has led us into that place of glorious peace with the Father and even now is granting us the realization of an inheritance that belongs to the one who owns the world. So children, when you see in your mind's eye or think of Christ in the manger, that baby, that helpless baby, some of you have some little siblings right now and can you imagine <laughs> thinking about this little baby, one day in that same body, he will sit upon the throne of heaven. For Christ is in the self-same body with which he was raised. Do you think about that? And he still bears the scars in his wrists and in his side and in his feet. This is what brought Thomas to a realization that this Messiah this Jesus of Nazareth, with whom he was a disciple. He was the Messiah. He had defeated death and hell in the grave. The question for us is when we see all these things in Scripture, when we hear these things, will we be like those of Isaiah 9 who have joy in the presence of the one who has come to break the power of those who oppress us? So third point, those who listen. How are we to receive him? We are to listen and we are to receive as scripture has commanded. If you have time, I tried to do this with my son in the car this morning. Listen to the Handel's Messiah on the way here. And he goes, I like the music, but the way he's singing is strange. <laughs> I said, you just haven't heard enough of it. I would simulate it, but I think I would lose you. Go home and listen to the words of Scripture put to beautiful music. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government, what government? There is no government that will not be upon his shoulders. Or given to him. That is, the government of heaven and earth is his. Have you ever seen a coronation? Or the knighting of a soldier? That authority, the calling, the high and holy nature of it is placed where? Upon the head and upon the shoulders of the one who takes up the task. As king of heaven and earth, there is no soul no group of souls, however organized, no group of men, women, and children that cannot say Christ is not our king. And this is the kind of king that rules and reigns over all the earth. He is wonderful. He is a counselor. He is a mighty God. He is an everlasting father. He is the prince of peace. And not only does he have this status, but as it relates to his kingship, there will be no end of the increase of it. Now, I focused on this at one point in the book of Revelation. That's a whole other sermon. 
One I would gladly preach even tonight if I felt like we had the energy. There will be no end, not only of his rule, but there will be no end of the increase of his rule. What that means is that the territory that belongs to Christ now on earth is ever-expanding. That his lordship, that his righteousness, that his peace, that the sweet counsel of his word, that the knowledge of God as Father, of the one who cares for us, of Christ as the prophet, priest, and king, even now, there are fewer people on earth that believe this than there will be tomorrow and the day after. And however many years Christ tarries, there will be no increase or end to the increase of it. So what are we to do then? How does this happen? We are to see Christ as he has been revealed to us. Not as we want him to be, but as the way he has been revealed. We see him in the flesh. Why? Because he came to redeem flesh. He came to redeem not only bodies, reasonable bodies, but that part that belongs to us as created beings, our souls as well. That we are to observe with all the word made flesh who has come to bring salvation into the world and rescue men out of darkness and into the kingdom of glorious light to take up the song that the angels first sang on the night of Christ's birth. This is how heaven breaks into the earth. We pray it down. We sing it down. <laughs> we testify to Christ's glory and grace. And even as Christ has promised according to what we pray, the kingdom of heaven is breaking upon the kingdom of earth. And it all begins in a manger. Well, it actually began in the garden. But what we really see in the manger is the word made flesh. It is as glorious by comparison to all the revelation of God that had come before as the light that broke into the darkness was at creation. The glory of God has shone. So what are we called then to do? Not only observe, but adore. We must love him. We must worship and serve him. We must rest and trust in the salvation that he brings. And not only then are we to adore him, but we are to adore him in such a way that it garners attention. That is what evangelism is. It is the practical adoration of Christ over and in and through all of life. We adore Christ in the way that we make our beds, in the way that we get up and go to work in the way that we make bread, in the way that we clean the house, in the way that we handle our finances, in the way that we teach our children. All of that is as an act of service and adoration to Christ. We make every moment holy. We think of Christ having come in the flesh, and we confess him to be our right king. That is, we join in the testimony of scripture we sing he speaks and listening to his voice new life the dead receive the mournful broken hearts rejoice the humble poor believe hear him ye deaf his praise ye dumb you loosened tongues employ 
ye blind, behold your Savior come, and leap ye lame for joy. If there is one thing we ought to have right now, in light of what Christmas testifies to, it is joy. And that we are to add to the song of the saints who have seen Christ. Think of the throng in heaven even now. It's not hard to picture because we have a picture of it in the book of Revelation. Day and night they worship around the throne of God. Why? Because they have been truly set free. And dear saints, one day that shall be us. But we do not have to wait, do we? There is conflicting affection in our hearts, though. But by God's grace and by his spirit, he will continue to teach us the song, that song of joy in his coming. Let's pray. Lord.